0: Well, the center field. Deion Sanders going back to the wall, and it is gone. Bo Jackson over. It's over, and the Cubs
1: have finally won it all. Sean Taylor will glide to the end zone. Let's go! Off the face off the Capitals have won it. 81-point game, 55 in the second half. Ladies and gentlemen, you have witnessed the second greatest scoring performance in
2: NBA history. Thank you for tuning in to episode 11 of the FBAS podcast. That is Facebook All Sports Podcast. You are either streaming us you've downloaded us from spotify or stitcher or itunes or maybe you're listening to us live on the rtf sports network either way thank you very much my name is wayne g i'm joined as always by jesse b and dan sully sullivan what's going on boys what's up family and friends
1: hey how we doing everybody how we doing welcome to the podcast
2: Like we've been doing the past few weeks, we are recapping the most recent episodes of The Last Dance, the Bulls documentary on ESPN. This week, we are tackling episodes seven and eight. There's only two left to go.
0: Oh, don't mention how few there are to go, Wayne.
2: Well, jumping into episode seven, I think it's interesting. It starts off with a press conference. We get Jerry Krause. He's asked a question about whether or not there's backstabbing with contracts and whatnot and Phil Jackson. And he says, there is no backstabbing. You got that? You understand me? And he gets all like tense and he leaves and storms out of the press conference. And somebody says, nice job, Craig. And I really thought it was a sarcastic, uh, nice job, Craig.
0: That'd be our funny suit wearing guy, Craig Sager. He was given that question there, and it certainly set off a tense atmosphere. Not that the bowl season wasn't already tense, and Jerry Krause and everything involving him wasn't already tense, but yeah, Craig Sager had to go ahead and ask about the extra tense moments of that season, and if there was any backstabbing going on, and I think it's certainly reminiscent of us here in New England, Wayne, of Bill Belichick, and when he gets asked a question he doesn't want to answer, he moves it right along, her he ends the interview and in the press conference right away. Now, the
2: episode goes straight from the press conference into, we knew this was coming, it's the 93 season, they've won their third championship, and we're going to talk about Michael Jordan's dad's death. Now, they start off by mentioning the relationship that Mike had with his father, that they were best friends, they were confidants, that James Jordan knew everything that Mike was thinking and everything that he was planning on doing, and he was the only one, he was the only person that close to Mike.
0: Yeah, we started this documentary with Mike scraping and clawing just to get his dad's attention. And now, like you mentioned, James is his right-hand man. That's his confidant. He's there through everything up until, unfortunately, he's not.
1: Yeah, I mean, we all knew this was going to happen, and we knew this happened in life. And I think we were all just kind of waiting for when was this episode going to air. And man, this was such a heavy episode. And seven and eight so far have been my favorite episodes. There's such an emotional aura of this episode, and it just went into so much behind-the-scenes stuff, and I just loved it so much. His relationship with his father, you know, I don't know your guys' relationship with your father's, but my dad was one of my best friends in the whole world, and I can only imagine the pain, and God, it just hurt. It hit me right in the feels.
0: Yeah, such a dark, intense introduction to episode seven.
2: It is, and they go into the news story when they break it that Michael Jordan's dad has been missing for three weeks. They say that he went to go visit some friends or something like that. He never came home. They can't locate him. They do find his car. It's all smashed up, and it's stripped down. And then on August thirteenth, 1993, they find James's body in a creek, and it's confirmed that he is dead. The authorities arrest two 18-year-old kids who apparently James got tired, pulled over to catch a few winks of sleep, and these kids broke into his car, killed him, robbed him hid the car, threw the body into a creek and took off. And it's just, it's mind boggling to me. I still don't understand exactly what it was all about. I mean, were these kids targeting him or did they just happen to drive by this parking lot and they say, hey, let's go check out that car? I mean, who knows what happened?
0: I'll never be able to wrap my mind around how you take someone's life. We certainly see some connections, some strong comparisons between James and Michael. You know, James was off playing golf. That's where Dolores thought he was. That's where Mike thought he was. And then we see him pull over to the side of the road, and he's driving a real nice vehicle. Sully, what's he driving?
1: A burgundy Lexus, man.
0: Yeah, so in that vehicle, he pulls over. He wants to get some rest, and these two schmucks, these two just thugs, 18-year-olds come over and they get involved and they tear up the vehicle and and they murder Mr. Jordan.
1: It was such a crazy situation. The parking lot and area they kept showing looked so secluded and just so out of the way. Like I don't know. Granted, this is also 93 and, and not 2020, so... You know, it's obviously different and less developed, but still, it just seemed like such a random place to just pull over and such a random place to just go looking to find a victim to for these 18 year olds. I don't know. It just all seems so weird. And it was just so tragic. I mean, just so tragic.
2: Nobody really knew what it was all about. Everyone was puzzled by it. And the media decided to speculate that maybe Michael Jordan and his gambling debts they talked about last episode might have led to his father's death. And Mike took that really hard because now not only did he lose his best friend and his father, but now he's got people saying, well, it was your fault for gambling so much.
0: Yeah, it's absolutely shameful. We talked last episode about Sam Smith and his book, The Jordan Rules. We see him in this episode say it's despicable. You know, for a guy that took shots at Jordan, he would never take that low of a blow. So it's, it's absolutely shameful what the media would do to stir up things about such a tragic moment in Michael Jordan's life.
1: I actually agree. Granted, conspiracy theories fly, and and everybody's got a theory and things like that, but to not have evidence and and to kind of attack this person, and like they mentioned, you, you know, it almost places the blame on Michael. And Think about that. Like, your father just gets murdered so tragically, and now people try to blame you for his death. I just couldn't even imagine what he was feeling.
0: Mike was 30 years old when this happened. I'll let you guys know I'm the youngest guy here, and I'm 30 years old. I'd be lost without my dad, without that father figure, without that parent. So, you know, to imagine what this guy was going through where he was on top of the world. We, we talked about it in this most recent episode, how he was getting absolutely mobbed by fans, by media. And so to be in that type of position and to not have your role model, your father with you is just absolutely appalling. Mike was
2: already contemplating retirement and walking away from the game. He had talked to his dad about it and told him, you know, I'm thinking about giving this thing up after this championship run. And this just may have been what finally pushed him over the edge. He says, I'm going to retire. He talks to the owner, Jerry Reinsdorf, and he says, I'm done. I'm out. And Jerry Reinsdorf says, You cannot retire until you talk to Phil Jackson. So he sets up a meeting in his office. It's just Phil and Mike. And apparently, from other documentaries I've watched, Mike says, Phil, What sort of challenge can you present to me? What can you offer me for me to challenge myself that I haven't already done? And Phil couldn't think of anything. So I just said, I guess it's time to move on.
0: Yeah. And in a moment, we do actually hear a quote we do hear from Phil Jackson is I think that Mike would be robbing society of his gift, but he understands he doesn't know what Mike's going through, but he can't second guess Mike here. He can't tell him what not to do.
1: They have so much respect for each other, and you just kind of got to believe that he knows what he's doing, and he's making the right decision for his family and things like that.
0: That got announced at the baseball stadium, as you mentioned, Wayne, and we know that both Jerry Reinsdorf and Jerry Krause had a connection to that stadium and that team. Do we think that either one of those two had a part in the leak of him retiring from basketball and jumping into baseball?
2: I don't think anyone in the front office did. I think it's one of those things where the Bulls were calling a press conference and the people at the baseball game said it's really just speculation that he's going to announce his retirement. So I think it might have been something that people who were on the inside besides Mike, maybe he would talked to some people, but somebody knew that he was already thinking about it. And just when they called this press conference, it seemed to make sense that maybe this is what it's
0: about. Yeah, that press conference was a foregone conclusion, and they talked about the list of people they had at that table and how they mentioned it looked just like the Last Supper. And that was just very reminiscent to me because I've seen that picture in so many places. And to imagine Jordan at the center of that table, retiring from the league for the very first time, that was a quote that that will stick with me from that episode for sure.
2: Some people say that the reason that he was walking away from the game, the gambling, the murder of his father, David Stern said, you're going to be suspended for the next 18 months. They asked David Stern about this, and he vehemently denied it. He said, that's just absolutely ridiculous. And even one of the reporters said, why would the biggest capitalist that maybe ever existed devalue his entire league to suspend a guy? It doesn't make any sense. And even Mark Vansel, who wrote the book Rare Air, he goes on and says, the summer before in Barcelona, Mike told me he was going to do this. He said, I'm going to shock the world. I'm going to quit and go play baseball. I asked him when. He said, I'd do it now, but neither Magic or Larry has won three in a row, so I gotta do that first.
1: Jesse had laid a little bit into this conspiracy theory that David Stern kind of pushed Michael out and and gave him the retirement idea instead of this being a suspension, but I don't think the whole Michael comes back works unless, you know, the baseball goes on strike, so I I don't think they could have planned that out accordingly kind of thing, and like you had mentioned, I don't see any way David Stern devalues all the other franchises and his overall league in general, so I don't know if I put too much stock into this one, but obviously the people are going to chat.
0: From what we've seen from the Last Dance documentary so far, Mike has the highest competitive drive amongst any athlete out there. And I I certainly lean to where the parts of the different documentary that Wayne has seen or heard from where Phil's not able to present Mike with a challenge or a new goal. So I think that's where Mike really had to step away from the game. As much as I love juicy conspiracy theories, I don't think there's any truth to the fact that he was pushed out of the league.
2: And like he had promised, he does decide to go play baseball for the Chicago White Sox. It's after 93. He wins the championship, and he's telling his dad before his dad died, hey, I want to go play baseball. And his dad said, do it now. You know, do it. You're 30 years old. Go do it. So he starts off in Double A, which they said that normally somebody like Mike would start off in single A or rookie ball, but they just didn't have the press accommodations because they knew that anywhere Michael Jordan goes to play baseball is going to be mobbed with the press, and they just needed more accommodations for the press. So he had to start in Double A.
0: Yeah, it's good that they mentioned that, you know, baseball is the sport that probably has the most development time necessary. That's why there are so many different leagues and farm system tiers. So for him to start out pretty darn close to major league level, I'm not sure how close it was in that era, to be honest. But he was certainly, I think, pushed ahead because of the media availability and the marketability of him and not where he needed to be to really gain his baseball tactics back, his skills
1: Yeah, you mentioned he was put where he was because of the media and not because of his skills, and I actually think it was detrimental to his baseball career and, and to his outcome in general. I think if he'd have gotten placed at a lower league where he should have been, he would have been able to develop his hit tool a lot better. You know, he would have been able to develop his ability to hit a curveball and an off-speed pitch in general. They mentioned how he got off to a hot start in that 13-game hitting streak, and then they mentioned the coach says, when's it going to come, when's it going to come, and boom, then he got hit with his first baking ball, and that's all he would see, and his average plummeted, and people just stopped throwing him a fastball. And obviously in lower leagues, you can develop that, and I just didn't think he had the ability to because of where they stuck him.
0: Michael Jordan is six foot six. He's a physical freak even for that time period. So to imagine him staying there at bat, there's not too many ball players now or in the history that aren't pitchers like Randy Johnson that are standing at his height. So I'm certainly sure that pitchers probably had an easier time throwing at a strike zone to a guy that's six six. There's definitely a bigger strike zone to throw to,
2: but I think a lot of it has to do with the lack of hand eye coordination, the lack of experience playing baseball, more so than his height. I know that Dan, we talked earlier uh, off the air about the fact that a lot of those bigger guys are power hitters, and Michael was more of a speed player, like a leadoff hitter, and so maybe that had something to do with it. Like He's not going to hit a bunch of bombs, so you can't strike out 200 times and only hit three home runs. you got to get on base so you can steal bases.
1: Yeah, exactly, Wayne. The guys who are six six are also 250, 260, and they may hit. That body weight, 250, 260, but they're going to hit 35, 40 home runs, and that just wasn't Michael's game. It was tougher for him to adjust, and his trainer mentions changing his body from a basketball body to a baseball body, and that's because, you know, surprisingly, baseball is really a, a lower body predicated game. You know, a lot of your power and drive comes from your lower body and your core and things like that. And basketball, Michael mentions later on in the episode, or maybe even episode 8, it's a shoulders and chest driven game. And so he had to redevelop his body, and a lot of people don't realize that that just can't happen overnight. Bo Jackson was so great at both sports because football is a power-driven, lower-body, core-based sport. So that's where I think the difference lied for Michael.
0: Sully, so you mentioned that the strike is what pushed Jordan back to the NBA. If that strike doesn't happen, how soon do you think Jordan gets to the league and should he have actually gotten to the league? Would he have had the skills to get to the major leagues?
1: I do think he would have eventually gotten to the league. For all of his negativity with his batting average, he was able to drive runners in, and that's a valued commodity. I also think, you know, Terry Francona mentions it in the episode. You give this guy his due practice and give him 1,500 at-bats in a year and let him get better, and he's eventually going to make it to the big leagues. I don't think he ever would have been a 280 hitter or anything like that, but I definitely think he would have had a spot on a ball club.
2: So Sports Illustrated comes out with this whole article right on the cover. It says Michael Jordan and the Chicago White Sox are embarrassing the game of baseball. And it's funny that after this article comes out, Michael Jordan never again talks to Sports Illustrated.
0: Oh yeah, Sports Illustrated absolutely did MJ Dirty. SI is one of the most iconic magazines that a sports fan can collect. And to know that the GOAT of basketball just decided he was going to shut them out for a portion of his career due to them just really taking shots where they didn't need to, he really had a problem with them not coming to him and getting his opinion and feedback as opposed to them just taking shots and, and writing some real negative stuff about him.
1: I think that's what he took the most offense about. Just not even coming to him and even getting his side of it or even asking him anything. And God, Sports Illustrated, whoever made that decision has got to be kicking themselves in the teeth right now. I mean, to go this whole time without ever getting another comment or article from him is just nuts.
2: At this point in the episode, they do the little flash forward on the timeline. They go back to 1998 and we get to find out about Mike the Tyrant. Basically... It's the Nets game before the game one of the playoffs. He says, you know, we'd have to be asleep to lose to these guys, and they almost do. It goes into overtime and they end up winning. Tony Kukoc has said, you know, after a bad game, everybody is on high alert with Michael.
0: Oh, yeah, Jordan ends up winning that game with an and-one dunk and beats the John Calipari-led New Jersey Nets.
1: Yeah, I didn't know John Calipari was the coach of the Nets there. He gets around, apparently. And Tony Kukoc mentions everybody was on high alert, like you said, and you had to be. I mean... Could you imagine just getting on Jordan's bad side? Like, we see him when he's in the midst of winning championships, he looks scary. Like, getting on his bad side would be just, woo.
2: Well, one of the people who takes the brunt of that bad side we see is Scott Burrell. They do a whole segment about how Scott Burrell is his whooping boy. He razzes on him. He calls him out for all kinds of stuff. Mike actually says, Scott was a really talented guy. He just lacked that commitment and that seriousness. I was trying to get him to get fired up and fight with me, and he's just too nice of a guy. He would never do that.
0: We know Mike would have said anything, and I think specifically he would have said anything about Scott because Scotty Burrell is the one guy that Mike knows that's actually better than him at baseball.
1: You know, not just that. I think Mike wants to just bring it out of you, whatever it is. Mike wants to bring it out, and he, you know, he wants to test his guys and to make sure they're battle tested. He, he mentions the trenches and gets war a lot, and you know, we see him get into an argument with another teammate in the next episode. And that teammate stands up for himself and mentions how the relationship was never better. And I think, you know, Mike wanted to see that from Scott, and he never did. And I actually think it probably hurt Scott in the long run. If he'd have stood up for it, I bet Michael would have taken him under his wing a little more.
0: We see Scott Burrell actually say on the documentary that Mike wanted to push everybody to play on his level, but Mike didn't understand that he was the only one playing at his level. I guess it got so bad that at
2: one point, Phil Jackson had to tell Michael Jordan, or maybe several points, he had to tell Michael Jordan to dial it down a notch. And Judd Bushler had said, you know, we were teammates, but we were afraid of him. And one of the things I noticed was in this series, we've seen several times that 98 Bulls team, their center was lottery pick Luke Longley. And they mentioned him twice in this episode. And it's the first time he's really mentioned, but we don't hear from him at all in any of these episodes. And from reading about it, I guess it has to do with a fractured
0: relationship between him and Michael. I'm certainly going to do my research after this, you know, guys, and I want to look more into Luke Longley and MJ Beef because I didn't see, see it myself. I didn't notice it. I appreciate you pointing it out, Wayne, because I've certainly heard his name before in reading the books and seeing the highlights. But, yeah, it's weird that we're seeing so many people give their honest feedback and we're not seeing him interviewed at all.
1: I'm really interested to see if the show actually touches on it at all and and to see why he's not a part of this. You know, maybe he just didn't want to be or things like that. But if there is something behind the scenes that, you know, I personally don't know about, obviously, you guys aren't aware of any public beef that Jordan and Luke Longley had. But one can only imagine the way Jordan was and, and the buttons he pushed that he could have pushed the wrong ones for a couple teammates and Luke might have just been that one.
2: The trivia before the commercial, we talk about how they don't really give you enough time to answer the question. So I had to pause my Hulu while I was watching it. And it said that the first year without Michael Jordan, the Bulls still had three all-stars on the team. Who were they? And I knew Scotty, I knew Horace Grant, and I couldn't think of the third one. But I figured it had to be a guard. And I didn't realize it was actually B.J. Armstrong. He was still on the team. I thought he was gone by that point.
0: I didn't pause. I didn't cheat. But to be honest, I was shocked to see that Horace was on there. They seemed to take shots at him earlier on in the documentary, calling him, you know, somewhat soft and emotional. So I was surprised to see that he was one of the ones that made it. Didn't shock me at all to see Scotty. And always nice to see B.J. Armstrong getting a little shine.
1: Speaking of B.J. Armstrong, a little foreshadowing in the next episode, you know, when he uh, has that light-up game in the playoffs.
2: It was a perfect segue into the next segment of the episode, which was Life Without Michael. They flash back again to nineteen ninety-four, the first season without Jordan. Scottie Pippen's now the leader, the MVP candidate, and he's kind of taking a different leadership role than Michael. He's not screaming at people, he's not getting on people, he's actually being more supportive. He's pumping them up when they do good. He's if they don't do well, he's like, hey, don't worry about it, you'll get it the next one. And guys just seem to really appreciate
0: Scotty's leadership style. Yeah, the sidekick had the opportunity to go ahead and rise up to be the leader, that soft-spoken leader that we know him to be. And he really did it out on the floor. You know, the guy averaging 22 points, nine boards, six dimes, and just under three steals a game that season. That's incredible.
1: Yeah, Scotty really took that point forward role and kind of made it into the stat stuffer we see today with the LeBrons and the Giannis and things like that, where they just kind of run the team. And that's kind of the perfect role for Scotty. He was so good at it, and you know he ran that triangle to a T and was just perfect at it. And Kukoc had a fantastic rookie season. They mentioned he's a typical European. You know, and he's just fundamentally sound and no defense. And that actually, you know, reminds us, I think, of a lot of European guys that were like that. Dirk obviously comes to mind as the one guy who is the best European, I think, of all time. But Scotty was just so perfect for what they had him do.
0: Yeah, Tony Kukoc, among that first wave of Europeans we see. And Wayne, I'm sure you can give us some more Europeans we got to see uh, in that era.
2: Well, earlier, before that era, Drazan Petrovic of the... New Jersey Nets was one of the great sharpshooters of the NBA. Detlef Schrempf was a back-to-back sixth man with the Seattle Supersonics. He came from Germany. Rick Smits was in the league. The Duncan Dutchman is from Holland. So there were a few guys, but definitely I think Tony Kukoc was the start of like a wave of young European guys coming over, not so much, you know, these veteran guys coming over at 35. Now we get to the Bulls and the Knicks. They're down O two 2 to the Knicks. And Patrick Ewing hits a shot to tie the game. And Phil Jackson draws up a play where Scottie Pippen's taking the ball out of bounds. And he's going to pass it in. The ball's going to get swung around. Tony's going to get open for a three-pointer, which he does. He's going to knock it down, which he does. And he did several times that year. But the interesting thing was Scottie Pippen saying, I am not coming into the game. I'm sitting out. And after the game, Phil telling him he let the team down, Bill Cartwright being tears and saying, Scotty, you know, Pip, you quit on us. You let us down. And Scotty's crying. And so Michael Jordan called Phil Jackson after that game. He said, Scotty's never going to live this down.
0: Yeah, we continue to see the brutal honesty and the takes that these guys have. Phil Jackson letting Scotty know, I can't believe you did that to us. You quit on us. And then Steve Kerr mentioning that this is a stain on Scotty's career for the rest of his life.
1: And I think it does. I think I think it follows him everywhere. We talk about how great Scotty is, and I think we all agree, you know, he's probably a top 25 player. At the same time, you know, when comparing him to other small forwards now, I have Kawhi Leonard ahead of him. And this quit reason is one of it. And, you know, we'll bring up that there's arguing the ability that Kawhi Leonard quit on his team for a whole season. But, you know, that's, I think, semantics. And he was more upset with the medical staff and the higher ups than he was, you know, with the team and the coach and having a pout attack because he didn't get the last shot. I just think it's so surprising as Scotty was such a great teammate throughout his entire career. You never heard any whispers how he was a bad teammate. And then he just says, I quit when I won't go out there. And good for Tony Kukoc though, who just got blasted through all this, the dream team and all that nonsense comes over, has the rookie and then hits that shot for the, just the sweet icing on the cake. You know, good for him.
2: They flash forward to 1998. The Nets are done with, they lose three games of zero to the Bulls. Scott Burrell Scores 23 points in that game three, which I think that they were trying to paint it as like, see, this is why Mike rode this guy, because this is what they needed him to do. But he just got a hot hand. It isn't like he gradually got better through Mike's tutelage. He just had a hot hand for one game. It had nothing to do with Mike. And then they asked Michael Jordan. They said, did your attitude cost you your nice guy status? And he says, you know, winning has a price. I pulled some people along who maybe didn't want to get pulled along. I challenged some people who maybe didn't want to be challenged. This is how I play. If you don't want to play that way, then don't. And then he gets teary-eyed and he says,
0: break. And I thought that was really weird. Seeing my man MJ get choked up, it choked me up. I'm not going to lie. I want to touch on Scott Burrell. You know, he was 9 of 11 that game. So the man was having a really hot hand. But yeah, I mean, MJ really took offense to people calling him out on his defense and then call him out as a bad teammate. I think anybody would. That really hurts somebody to know that I'm a bad teammate and nobody wants to play with me. So this is, you know after the Jordan Rules came out. And he, to me, is trying to get ahead of what people are maybe going to think of him after this documentary comes out, where he's a superstar player, but he's kind of a dick.
1: You know, this part of the documentary actually kind of, you know, this is, I think, what I spent the most time thinking about in between our time of recording, is why he had this emotional break he had, you know, kind of at this point. And the only thing I can really come up with personally is... Michael really values winning, I think more than a lot of people realize. And I think Michael really values this drive more than a lot of people realize. And it's for all the people who have seen Westworld, it's his cornerstone. It's it's kind of what he builds his life upon. And so when somebody challenges that, to see that emotional break from Michael, I think is just, God, it's so beautiful to see almost, you know, in, in such a weird way, just to see that vulnerability from a superstar that we hold in the highest regard. You know, we almost think he's godlike, and to see him be that vulnerable was just so beautiful to see.
2: Episode eight starts off all about Michael's self-motivation, and it really starts off with B.J. Armstrong. They go into that second round series with the Hornets. They win game one, and B.J. Armstrong, he's interviewed. He says, you know, the Bulls were a better team than us, and they knew they were, but I knew those guys, and I felt like we knew how to beat them, and then B.J. goes off and has a great game, game two, and ends it by like screaming at Jordan and Pippen in the Bulls bench, and I thought it was funny that Michael was like, B.J. should have known better.
0: We've talked about MJ and his easy ability to be able to just pick up a chip and turn anything into a scenario where he's going to come at you. And BJ, being a former teammate, he talks about how he got his moment. MJ was going to make sure that that's all it was, baby. It was just a moment.
1: Yeah, I mentioned the foreshadowing BJ's game, and that's all it was. It was one game because boys should have known better. And Michael's right. I mean, why would you ever give this man something to fight for? You know what I mean? Like, just let him do what he has to do. He already is the greatest. Why give him a chip? Like, it just didn't make sense. But the rest is history.
2: Well, that's when they go into the whole history of Mike self-motivating. And somebody says, do you know the Le Bradford Smith story? And I was like, I'd never heard it. So they're like, well, Le Bradford Smith was on the bullets. And he goes for 37 points against Jordan. And didn't talk trash or anything the whole game. He just happened to have a really hot hand. He scores 37 points. And then on his way out of the gym, Mike says, the story goes, he said, nice game, Mike. And Michael says, tomorrow we're playing those guys, you know, uh, home and home. He was in the first half. I'm scoring as many points as he just scored in this whole game. And he went out and he scored 36 points in the first half. And then years later, Michael was like, nah, he never said that. I just pretended he did to get myself motivated.
0: Yeah, just adding to the legend of Mike doesn't care what he needs to do. He's going to make something up. He's going to look at you the wrong way. He's going to say that George Carl passed him up at dinner one night. He's going to take all these little itty-bitty things that nobody else would make mountains out of these molehills, but Mike's going to, and Mike's going to make you eat your words, even if you didn't even say them. Like I
1: mentioned earlier, his cornerstone and his like core beliefs, and you know, I think this kind of attests to that. The fact that he lied to motivate it, and he could do that. I mean, that's kind of sociopathic. I mean, to be able to convince yourself to just go to a different level because of something completely made up, I mean, that's incredible. I mean, the guy's just a machine.
2: I like that in the locker room after that game with BJ Armstrong, they show Mike kind of squeezing the bat, and he says, I wonder if they're going to talk trash at the start of the game when it's 0-0. It's easy to talk trash when you're winning, but it's a lot harder to talk trash when you're tied or if you're losing. And I thought that was interesting because I personally, as a basketball player, I talk trash more when I'm losing because I use that to motivate myself. But it's funny that he's right, that when you're usually when you're losing, you zip it up.
0: Yeah, motivation is going to work a little different for everybody. We have spoken about how we all have played sports in one capacity or another. So I'm sure we've all have motivated each other or we've had somebody motivate us. But I don't think any of us have gone to the point that Mike has to make up these stories. I've never gone that
1: far, and I'm with you, wayne i'm I'm talking shit from the start to the finish of the game. I don't care if I'm down by thirty or I'm up by thirty. I'm talking shit. That's just what I like to do, especially on the football field. You definitely see a tone down in shit talking when somebody's getting their ass kicked, you know
2: Well, the bulls end up winning the series. They win three in a row, they win the series four one, they go on to the pacers, and that's when we get that little flashback wheel again. It goes back to Michael Jordan's return from baseball which Dan you had mentioned had something to do with the baseball strike that if the strike doesn't happen Michael's still playing but he wouldn't cross the picket line.
1: Yeah, which I I hold a ton of respect for Mike and this is why I think, you know, sports illustrated especially and all these people who attacked Mike for just trying to go out there and do something cuz he was a superstar. No, Mike loved the game of baseball and Mike had a ton of respect for the game of baseball and Mike could have easily crossed the picket line and played still and you know he held true to his word and stuck with his guys and his teammates.
0: Yeah, it it does kind of remind me of earlier on in the documentary when he didn't want to get too involved in any political issues. And here he has a chance to really dip in his toe into something that's controversial, you know, being a, a scab player, a replacement player, and, and he doesn't want to do that. So it, it's very stand up of him. And he's not the only one that wanted MJ back in the NBA.
2: Now, they didn't mention that. At this time, he gets back into playing basketball because he plays in Scottie Pippen's charity basketball game, which had Pippen and Penny Hardaway and Grant Hill and Jason Kidd and all the NBA stars. They had this charity game in Chicago, and he invited Mike to play, and Mike was like, yeah, sure, I'll play, scores 55 points and is the MVP of the game. And now all of a sudden it's like he's not playing baseball, so he calls up BJ Armstrong, which is funny. The buddies are now, right? And he says, hey, uh, why don't I join you for breakfast? And they have breakfast. He goes, hey, why don't I come to practice with you? It'll be fun. And BJ's like, oh, you're too old. You've been out of the game too long. You can't play anymore. He said, before they know it, they're playing one-on-one. And that's when we get to see that uh, iconic image of Scottie Pippen pointing at the bottom of his Jordan. Is it a 10? Jordan 10? He's like given the come hither.
0: Yeah, that image of Scotty pointing down at the shoe is almost as iconic as the press release that Jordan had. So it, it's super iconic to me. It's definitely something that I'll remember. And the poking and prodding that B.J. Armstrong and the other teammates had to do to get the gears moving in Michael Jordan, to, to get him wanting to compete and prove something in the NBA again, knowing that a year and a half had passed, his skills, at least basketball-wise, had diminished some, and there was some young, fresh talent in the NBA ready to challenge him.
1: How true to Michael Jordan fashion is it? He goes to another person's charity event game and balls out and takes the MVP. Like most charity events are set up for whose charity event is going to like, you know, let's feed Scotty Pippen the ball. It's his charity event kind of thing. Michael shows up, scores 55, takes the glory. I mean, like that's just true
0: Michael Jordan fashion. MJ loves that double nickel. (laughs)
2: <laughs> now, they mentioned that when Jordan comes back at this point, that the Bulls could have extended Horace Grant, but they chose not to. And he goes to the Orlando Magic. And, you know, Mike says in the, the episode, we flash back to kind of him talking about his dad. He said that he felt naked being there without his dad watching his game because his dad was at almost every single game.
0: Yeah, I'm sure it would be super difficult to lose someone that had been so supportive, someone who had been there through the thick and thin while you're growing up in the league and becoming that mega star that you are. And to not have him there to watch, you know, your reintroduction into the league, to see you set the, those new goals for yourself, I'm sure it was immensely difficult for him.
1: Well, I think one of the more iconic things that Michael mentioned that I, I forgot to mention about his dad's death was you got to f- try to find the positives out of the negatives. And when he first quit, his dad had seen him play his last basketball game. And I think that actually meant a lot to Michael. And now, so he comes back and now he's playing. And this is the first game he's ever played that his dad's never seen. You know, or dad didn't have the chance to see, you know what I mean? And God, I can I can only imagine the weight that would feel. I mean, like we mentioned, you know, you said your dad wasn't your best friend. You know, my dad was. And he was so integral into my love for sports and, you know, my love for Pete Rose and these things like that. And I can only imagine having to do something like that with him not there would just be heartbreaking.
2: Now, he doesn't wear number 23 because that was the last number his dad saw him wore. So now we get to see he's wearing number 45. And the thing is, Steve Kerr mentions in this game that they're in Indiana. He said it feels like a playoff game. It's just electric because it's Michael's first game back. And Michael comes out. He struggles. He's bricking shots. He scores 19 points or something like that. They lose 103 to 96. 96. I remember watching this game, and I remember him being on the cover of Sports Illustrated shortly after, even though he probably didn't talk to them for the interview. And this was the first blog I ever wrote. I was 14 years old, and I wrote a blog about Michael Jordan being a ball hog in that game.
0: Yeah, you know, we're talking about the Pacers in that era, and we know that Reggie Miller is part of that era, and you know he really wanted to make a name for himself against Jordan. He did.
2: I think everyone wanted to beat Michael Jordan. They felt like he wasn't the same player, and they took advantage of that for sure. Now 6 days later they're playing against the Atlanta Hawks and Michael Jordan hits a game winner at the buzzer. I thought it was funny that the announcer was like, "He's officially back." And I'm like, "Why? Cuz he hit a game winner? He still only had like, you know, 19 or 20 points. It isn't like he went out and dropped 55 like he did the following game at Madison Square Garden.
0: Yeah, you know, when he came back, I would say at his best, he was probably 75% of who he actually is. And 75% of MJ is still very, very good. But again, we're talking about a revamped league with some young, fresh players. Some some things that changed on his team. And of course, things that changed on all the other teams. So he had new challenges ahead. And so I don't think he was even 80% of himself.
1: I mean, I completely agree with you. I don't think he was even close. And, you know, I mentioned this earlier, and then he mentioned this again in the episode. They're two different bodies, and basketball is such a high-caloric, high-intensity high-winded sport where you're running a ton and we all know baseball is the complete opposite. (laughs) Baseball players sit around and eat sunflower seeds and dip and drink during games. Like, I mean, baseball is the complete opposite. So this is a complete shock to his body and it's just a testament to the athlete he was. I mean, To be able to jump back, you know, I know we give Bo all kinds of credit for being one of the greatest athletes of all time, for being able to play two sports at such a high level. I don't think we give Michael Jordan enough credit for being one of the best athletes of all time. To be able to jump back into the sport and still not necessarily dominate the way he did, but play at such a high level is just so incredible.
2: I would say that I don't think Michael Jordan doesn't get credit as an athlete. I think he's always one of the top athletes of all time. And I think Bo Jackson is definitely a far superior athlete, not just because he played two sports. I mean, that's only part of it. It's the fact that not only was he an all-star in both sports, the fact that he in college was a NCAA Division One decathlete. And the first time he ever threw a discus with no experience, he set the school record in the discus throw. He ran 100 meters in like 11.5. I mean, he was just a freak athlete.
1: No, I'm not discounting Bo Jackson in any way. What I mean is, so on FBAS, we do these drafts, and one of them is the greatest athlete draft. And, you know, unfortunately, Michael Jordan is usually not drafted high in these because it's usually the best athlete is viewed as kind of a two-sport guy or something like that, or a multi-sport guy. So like Jim Thorpe gets a ton of credit in that, you know, just a lot of these other guys. And I think just we don't give Michael enough credit for going back to basketball and playing it at such a high level.
2: They play the Orlando Magic in the Eastern Conference semifinals, and the Bulls are up 91-90. Jordan's dribbling the ball up. Nick Anderson steals it from him. Penny Hardaway passes it to Horace Grant. Now the Bulls are down. Then Michael Jordan gets a chance to take the game-winning shot. Instead, he passes it off. So what do you Jordan slash LeBron haters you know, say about that? And he throws it out of bounds. And then after the game, Nick Anderson says, well, 45 isn't 23. So what happens next game?
1: The passing up the shot, I could not actually believe when I saw it. I don't I don't remember seeing that live or, you know, watching that. Going back and watching that, I mean, you can clearly tell the man was shooketh at the time. And to see that from Michael Jordan, it's just so breathtaking to see it. I kind of took me back and I was at a loss for words as to why he would give that shot up because it looked like he had the shot. It looked like it's a shot he would put up 10 out of 10 times in any other game. So obviously the man had some confidence issues at the time.
0: Sully, were you and your family down in South Florida not watching this game? Were you guys not pulling for the magic?
1: Honestly, basketball is not a big sport in my family. Baseball was was always the sport that kind of ruled the house. And then soccer was actually the second sport that ruled the house. And so basketball wasn't something I picked up until, you know, I was probably a, a junior in high school. And that was just me alone. So, no, we weren't watching any basketball.
2: Well, Michael puts number 23 back on, and the Bulls win 104-94. And the Magic, though, end up winning the series four games to two. Horace Grant's carted off on the shoulders, and Michael Jordan says this is one of his lowest points as a professional basketball player. Walking off the court, Tim Grover asks him, he's like, all right, Mike, when do you guys want to get together this offseason? Mike's like, I'll see you tomorrow.
0: Horace Grant, what a goofball getting that Rudy-like cart off the basketball court. You didn't even win the finals at that point, my man.
1: Yeah, but I think for him, that's obviously his finals. You know, he felt really slighted. We all mentioned that. We don't think he got his, or we don't think he felt like he got his due props in Chicago. And I think he felt slighted when they chose not to extend him. So to be able to come back and beat that team, I think was so big for him. And to beat Michael, and I'm doing air quotes here because we've all said that really wasn't Michael Jordan. We all saw what happened. He comes out of the offseason. He dedicates himself and, you know, comes back and just puts the stomp down.
2: The whole next section of the documentary is about that off-season. It's August 1995, Michael's filming Space Jam and the Warner Brothers said, you know, we're going to build you a state-of-the-art training facility with a full-length court and weights and everything, and Tim Grover's there with them every day. They invite the best players in the NBA, again, Penny, Reggie Miller, Dennis Rodman, whoever, Amari Stoudemire, whoever's playing at that time, if you played in the NBA and you were an all-star, you probably showed up to Michael Jordan's Warner Brothers dome and played with him, and the whole time he was there, I thought it was great, that not only was he just playing there to get in shape, he was watching these guys play, and he was taking mental notes and making scouting reports on them.
0: Yeah, MJ, the mental savage, the assassin. I can't believe he missed the biggest guy there at the Jordan Dome, Sean Bradley. What a goofball that guy was running down the court.
2: The enormous Mormon.
0: (laughs) He was probably there just because he was in a movie. They didn't want to invite Sean Bradley's ass. Well, those guys that were there, the Reggie Millers and other players that were there commenting on it, they were saying, man, this guy's out there putting hours into the film process, coming here, working out in the morning, playing ball with us and and kicking our ass. So just a great vantage point to see what Warner Brothers was willing to do to make Jordan happy so they could put out that movie that, you know, him and the Looney Tunes, man, they set off the world and Sully, you drafted them in our movie draft.
1: Damn right I did. I love that movie, man. If you grew up at that time, even now, I mean, because we're all showing it to our kids. If you got kids, it's such an iconic movie, and it was it was really well done. I mean, Bill Murray's hilarious. You know, Larry Bird's got the cameo on the golf course. I mean, it was just a really well done movie. I thought. And we say we knock kind of Michael a lot. We obviously give him his due praise, but man, the man had a work ethic second to none. And I think if anybody's listening and wondering how to become great at anything, you know, you have to have a work ethic that can't be rivaled. And Michael's shown that. And like you mentioned, Reggie Miller kind of makes that a point.
0: You guys think that Braun Braun's going to ask all his friends to come out and play basketball against him while he's filming Space Jam 2? I'm not sure. I think they'll
2: just want to come out. LeBron attracts talent. People will go wherever LeBron goes, similar to Michael Jordan. Except like we talked about last episode, LeBron's not a dickhead, so he probably attracts more people.
1: Yeah, and you know, it's just going to be such a hyped kind of, you know, we live in a day and age where it's cool to do shit. And so I think that's where people will go just cuz it's cool to go, you know, kind of thing and and not go to train like the real NBA players were doing back then.
2: Now they mentioned the 95-96 preseason. Michael Jordan is on a mission. Every single day at training camp is an absolute war with him. And he's like, these guys don't realize that they think they're on the championship Chicago Bulls that they didn't help us win. Like these guys are just riding the coattails. So I'm going in there and I'm putting the fire to them to let them know this is what it's like to play in the trenches. And it gets to that point where Phil Jackson is calling some ticky-tack fouls on Michael while he's guarding Steve Kerr. He slams Kerr to the ground and is like, no, that's a foul. They get into a little skirmish and Michael gets kicked out of practice.
1: Don't downplay that skirmish, Wayne. Steve Kerr hits him in his chest and Michael says he cocks back and punches Steve Kerr right in the eye. I mean, that's not a skirmish. That's a full-on fistfight. And I mean, I mentioned it earlier, and this is what I was talking about. This is that player that stood up for himself and said, look, you're not going to punk me. I don't care how good you think you are or how good you actually are. I'm a grown-ass man, and and this is what I do for a living also. And, you know, to see that out of Steve Kerr, you know, I think that really helped Michael, and Steve Kerr mentions, you know, it made their relationship improve dramatically. Michael felt like he could trust him, and Steve Kerr felt like he could trust Michael. And you guys know in team sports, man, trust is so important, and, and that's what made this team arguably the best team of all time.
0: Yeah, we know that Jordan's consistently pushing his teammates to get to the next level because he knows that they're going to face the teams that are going to always put, play themselves at a higher level. He went through the Pistons of the late 80s and early 90s, and then he went through the Knicks of that same era and the Pacers and Heat. So he's preparing his team, and this is an instance where we didn't see Steve back down, and we actually saw Mike, at least he says there was him, reach out to Steve after and say, hey, man, you know, I screwed up. can't believe I did that. You know, let's start over from here. And I think we all know that they gained a different type of respect for each other after that.
2: Yeah, and Steve Kerr even says like he felt like Michael appreciated him a little bit more. And another story I'd heard about that was Robert Parrish talking about he had played on that Bulls team or one of those Bulls teams that won a championship, and him and Jordan got into a shouting match during one of the practices, and Jordan said something like, I'm going to kick your ass. And Robert Parrish said, let's go. I'm ready to fight right now. And Jordan backed down and didn't do anything. He said that at the end of the day, he didn't think that Jordan really wanted to fight him. Jordan was just pushing him to see how he would react.
0: So getting ready for the moment.
2: So the 95-96 season opens in the episode with Jordan lacing up those Air Jordan 11s, the white ones with the black uh, patent leather on the toe that I love so much.
0: Oh, I just looked him up as well. Taxi.
2: The Bulls start off 23 and 2, they end up 72 and 10. They beat Miami 3-0 in the first round, the Knicks 4-1 in the second round, and then they beat the Orlando Magic in the rematch in the Eastern Conference Finals 4 games to 0, and then it's on to the finals. And they really kind of brush past that to really get to the Sonic
0: series. Yeah, I mean 11 games to 1 as far as you know wins and losses, that's that's a cakewalk.
1: Yeah, I wish they would have showed a little bit more. I mean, Horace Grant talks about it. He goes, you know, when they go into the series, he says, you know, that team was better. They knew it. and They crushed us. You know, I wish they would have gone into it a little bit more. But like you said, they rushed it into the Sonics, you know, series.
2: So trivia part two, it says the Bulls have the best regular season combined playoff winning percentage of 870 of any team in history. It said who is number two. I didn't need to pause it. I said Golden State Warriors. I couldn't even think of
0: anybody else. And that's what it ended up being. Yeah, I mean, you had to know it was going to be them after the 73 and nine season. Yeah,
1: exactly. I mean, why was that even a question? That was the dumbest shit ever. But hey, you know, if you didn't get that one, you're not a sports fan, honestly.
0: That's a trivia question for the old folk.
2: I got into a pretty heated debate uh, shortly after this episode. There was uh, somebody posted something on the Sports Soup website. It was who would win the Bulls with 72 and 10 or the Warriors with Kevin Durant. Well, I know wasn't wasn't that 73 win team, but I was kind of trying to be diplomatic about it and say, listen, both of those teams play completely differently. They're, they're different types of players. They're, they're different defenses, different offenses. I think it would be a really good series. And there was one guy on there who took offense to me bringing logic to it and really just wanted me to like get into a fight with him or something.
0: How dare you wane in your stupid logic?
1: Yeah, so I actually followed that whole comment thread. I, I don't know if Jesse did. I So I actually read everything he was saying and everything you were saying. And honestly, I don't know how you have the patience for that, Wayne. I don't know how you did it. I mean, for what this kid was saying, you know, to be fair, he looked 25. So God only knows he probably never even watched a Jordan game live and has no idea. But, you know, he thinks he's an expert. And not only that, the points just you were making made a ton of sense. And he wasn't making any sense. So props to you, man.
2: So they go to the Sonics series, and speaking of mismatches, they say, are the Sonics the biggest mismatch ever against this Bulls team that was 72-10? and And I thought that was kind of unfair to the Sonics because they were the best team in the West.
1: I mean, I had mentioned this earlier in an episode. Me and Patrick Lange from FBAS have got into a fairly heated discussion about this, and I think the greatest mismatch ever was actually the Cavs and the Mavs, and the Mavs actually won, but I think the Cavs were were the heaviest favored team in that series. I think this is a a greatly underestimated team. You had already mentioned Detlef Schrempf, two times six man of the year, Gary Payton Hall of Famer, Sean Kemp Hall of Famer. You know, these guys were extremely talented and, like you said, were the best team in the West, so it wasn't like they were playing an eight seed or anything like that. So I think they get extremely underrated, and I think it was a really, really good
0: team. Wayne, flex that muscle. Name another couple players off that team.
2: Nate McMillan, maybe Dale Curry was on that team. I like it. We flashback to that whole Michael's self-motivating. He's out to dinner. George Carl comes into the restaurant, walks past him, doesn't say hello. And Michael's like, that's it.
0: We're crushing these guys. Yeah, again, it doesn't take anything. We, we didn't hear from George Carl. So who knows if this did happen. I've heard he's not really the friendliest coach, at least from all the NBA players that I obviously talked to. In this situation, we know that Mike doesn't need anything at all to rise his level to the next stage. And I'm sure he told his teammates and that riled them all up.
1: Yeah, I'd like to see if this one was true, because if this one is true, then I think this actually is a slight. I think it's very disrespectful for George Carl to walk past Jordan in a restaurant and not say anything. So I actually don't have any problem with Jordan taking offense to this and playing with Reckless Abandoned because of it. Again, I'd like to know if it was really true, because Michael does have a past of making things up. So, you know.
0: Yeah, if it's true, you're only given the biggest assassin bulletin board material. Yeah. George Carl puts Gary Payton, the defensive player of the year,
2: on Michael Jordan.
1: Well, actually... Gary Payton saw he was, the team was getting torched and said, hey, I'm going to play on him. You know, I'm tired of this. You know, I'm going and putting myself on him. I don't care what you say, Carl. And, you know, he gets the moniker Jordan Stopper. And, you know, I think he deserves every bit of it. I mean, he harassed Jordan in those next two games and really almost turned that series around.
0: After we see that happen, we see one of the most savage human beings on the planet. And I'm not talking about regular Michael Jordan. I'm talking about iPad Jordan. We see the producer of The Last Dance documentary hand Michael Jordan the iPad, and we know from former episodes that this is when he is peak petty, and Michael Jordan laughs when he sees Gary Payton state that if this is how it was to start the series, then it had been a much better series. Jordan says, oh, no, 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 you weren't stopping anything. I was being stopped a little bit in some way, shape, or form, but it wasn't because of that. It was due to the emotion of the time and place. Yeah, it was just Gary Payton
2: said, uh, you know, we beat him up and he was tired out, and then Jordan just laughed out loud. I mean, I
1: kind of half agree with Gary Payton. I mean, I think George Carl's a great coach and all, but how do you go into it not putting Gary Payton on him? I know he said he wanted him for his offense, but that's not what Gary Payton's known for. Like, I don't know. It didn't make any sense to me. And we saw in those two games that Gary Payton clearly made a difference guarding Michael. And who knows how much it would have mattered. Do I think they would have still won the series? Of course, Chicago would have still won the series. But do I think it goes, you know, 3-0 and then, you know, I don't think it ends up like that. I think it's a much more back and forth series, but obviously oversteps a little when he, when he thinks he was tiring michael out or michael at least thinks he does and michael finds it
0: very amusing Who was guarding pippen on that sonics team good question i mean i would
2: assume detlef shrimp when he comes in but he's the sixth man so he's not a starter um nate mcmillan's a really good defensive player it could have been he might have started on jordan
0: yeah that probably that that makes sense that you know they did have a good defensive backcourt there thinking that if you're going to stop jordan or at least attempt to then that's going to allow pippen to go ahead and blossom like we've seen him do So they go to Game 6 of the NBA
2: Finals, June 16th, 1996. It's Father's Day. The Bulls win the championship. It's Jordan's first championship since coming back from baseball. He falls on the floor. And then we see him in the locker room rolling around, sobbing. And this is one of those scenes where it's iconic. I've seen this scene a million times, but I've never had any audio with it. And hearing Jordan take those deep breaths and crying, like, I actually, it got to me.
0: Oh, absolutely. You know, like you, Wayne, we've seen these highlights before. We've seen him grab that ball, grip it tight and lay on the court. But for this time, for us to have the the unreleased audio of him sobbing, it brought tears to my eyes and it was very tough to watch, very difficult to watch. But you had to know that that meant the world to him.
1: I completely agree. I mean, if you're not touched by that moment and if it didn't move you and truly affect you, then you're a robot. I mean. To hear him just sigh in little pure agony. I mean, just the the pain you can imagine he felt to miss his father. And I always kind of thought this. Do you think he lost those two games on purpose to, to win the championship on Father's Day?
2: I don't think to win the championship on Father's Day, but there were rumors that the Bulls might have lost those two games so that they could win the championship at home.
1: Yeah. And that, I I think, maybe has a little truth to it. I think that crazy conspiracy theory, you know, obviously nobody wants to lose and things like that, but that team knew how good they were. That team knew if they turned it on for one game, they could obviously beat this team. And I think winning it on that day just kind of meant so much to Michael that I think he may have thought about that.
2: And then the end of the episode is fast forward again to the 1998 Eastern Conference Finals against the Pacers, and Reggie Miller saying, I think the Pacers are the better team. And then it's like, credits.
0: Yeah, one of the better snipers of the era and of all time. He wants to go ahead and plant his flag on, Jordan's not going to stop me. I'm ready to go ahead and retire this boy.
1: You know, just another Hall of Famer that kept, not, kept from not winning a title by the good man, MJ.
2: And that might have been a better team. I mean, Reggie Miller, Rick Smits, Anthony Davis, Dale Davis, Mark Jackson, that was a really loaded team, and they just weren't the Bulls.
1: Wasn't Chris Mullin on that team, too, or no?
2: He may have been, yeah. I don't know if Jalen Rose was. Yeah, Jalen Rose might have been, too. No, he might have been in Denver, still.
1: Yeah, Chris Mullin was on that team, too, actually, yeah.
2: That's stacked.
1: Yeah, I mean, that that team was a really good team, then.
2: So that is the wrap up of the two episodes, episode seven and eight. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it. And hopefully you are listening to us on the RTF Sports Network. We're trying to grow the network with shows like ours and other great shows that are on there. We are nominated for show of the month. So please do visit the website and vote for us for show of the month so that we can win this thing. If you do enjoy the show, we have just opened up blogs, the FBAS podcast. I mean, me entered this first blog on there
0: today, and it's pretty fantastic. So check that out as well. Yeah, we know like we know Wayne likes to hear himself talk and read his own words. So go check that out, guys. We've almost gotten to 500 votes on the show of the month, and now uh, we still have over a week left to uh, vote. So go ahead and help us get to the best place possible. And then like Wayne says some sneaky's coming.
1: Yeah, thank you folks for listening. You know, make sure to rate, review, you know, uh- Catch us every Wednesday 9 p.m. live. If not, iTunes, Stitcher, all the all the fun stuff. Again, vote for us. RTSportsnetwork.com. Click the red banner at the top. Then vote for Facebook All Sports. You know we really appreciate it. You, you know everybody who listens and, and rates and reviews. If you can comment, give us something you want to talk about. Some questions. We're really open, guys. So give us a shout. Hey Kenny, that you back there, man? What's up? <laughs>